Thank you, everybody, for your attendance. I'd like to again thank our sponsors, Liberty Life, for their uh, generous sponsorship for this year's event. Um, I did mention earlier that there was a, a draw that was going to take place. Um, I think I'm going to do the draw now um, so that we can get to the, the excitement uh, or the exciting session that's to follow. Melanie, could I ask you to come up and uh, just make the draw, please? This is completely random. The winner is Kirshen Moodley. Congratulations. <laughs> Melanie, don't go just yet. Is Kirshen here? Ah, thank um, Can I ask that at the end of the session you just make contact with Melanie and she'll arrange? Oh, here it is. Here is the, the basket. Do you want to come up and collect it? Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations. Melanie, don't go just yet. Um, I'd also like to, on behalf of the pensions, the Retirement Matters Committee of the Actuarial Society, thank uh, Melanie Janssen, who has done all the work in getting this conference um, sorted and arranged. Um, you can appreciate that, that the logistics involved are, uh, are seriously onerous, and behind the scenes, the effort that goes into arranging something like this cannot be underestimated. So, on behalf of the uh, Retirement Matters Committee, Melanie, would you please come up so that I can give you something small to thank you for your efforts? Right, we're here for the afternoon session. It's the last session of the day. Um, I'd like to introduce to you Nico van der Kolf. Um, Nico heads up actuarial and group reporting for all mutual emerging markets. He's also the current chair of the Actuarial Society Professional Matters Board. I'm sure many of you know Nico. Um, I know that he gave a similar presentation to the presentation to the LIFE uh, seminar, and it was extremely well received. It's an opportunity for us to um, get some professional development. It's an opportunity that we aren't always afforded, and I'd like to hand over to Nico, who's going to take us through it. Thank you very much. Thanks for that start, Costa. Uh, I realized that um, for the LIFE seminar, I felt a lot more um, comfortable knowing that in my heart of hearts, I was a LIFE actuary. And after listening to the pension funds adjudicator taking out the pensions industry, I was doubly glad that you know, clearly the life actuaries who built all these RAs are blameless. Um, <laughs> so um, let's start by apologizing to anyone who was at either of the life seminars up here or down in Cape Town. We, um, like efficient actuaries, decided to get the consideration once and then get the annuity payment thereafter. And um, therefore, we're repeating the session. Fortunately, the content was deliberately picked to try and be um, industry neutral as much as possible because it's uh, definitely possible to abstract uh, professional matters a little bit more than many other areas. Let's hope I can figure out my buttons. There we go. So um, in terms of introduction, I'm... Um, going to give a short introduction in terms of what today is actually all about. Then um, on the theme of maintaining this wonderful efficiency, we um, asked for and then shamelessly poached some videos produced by the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries um, that are very nice generic case studies. And the good news is that um, 
That means I don't have to do much talking. In fact, um, the way this will work is that most of the talking will be done by the audience today um, because that's how we'll get the most value out of it. And that way you can all end up counting the CPD with a clean conscience because you actually um, didn't just get something out of it, you gave something into it. Um, so that'll work. The two case studies we've picked, the one is a, a generic one about someone who changed a job and what sort of issues they faced, and the other one is a bit about communication and the challenges, and then there's a short conclusion at the end. So there's a good place to start. I mean, we've kind of lived through this traumatic one a couple of times. Um, was he innocent? Was it murder? Was it culpable homicide? Was it something different? And for someone who's had just enough exposure to the law to be dangerous, this was quite an interesting question the first time it came up. Um, maybe just a show of hands, who knows the difference between whether you're innocent when someone dies, it's just an accident, or whether it's culpable homicide or when it's murdered? Who thinks they've got it reasonably? Well, show of hands, show me how many hands, because I think some people will think they know it quite well. Okay, so there's, there's enough that it might be worth touching on it quickly. I mean... It clearly was an accident um, more than anything else because in, in any of the cases there, someone died and stuff happened that made someone die, otherwise they wouldn't come ask the question. But the big difference is, was there intent of some nature? Then it's murder. Was there negligence but not intent? Then it's culpable homicide. And was there neither murder nor uh, intent nor negligence? Then you're dealing with an accident by and large. And... In the Oscar case, a lot of it was about the nature of this intent that he had to have. And we can get into that, but that's a completely irrelevant topic for today. Because it's not the kind of intent that you have or don't have, although the one that he was eventually judged to have was intent that when you first hear it, it almost doesn't sound like intent. He did something um, which he must have foreseen had the probability of someone dying and he reconciled himself to that thought. Which um, is an interesting thing because it doesn't sound like he directly wanted to kill someone. But he somehow still got comfortable with that to the extent that he didn't take precautions like shooting warning shots higher through the, through the door. And um, therefore, intent can exist when... Um, when you didn't directly intend the outcome, but you did intend to do something which someone else would not have done without taking some precautions, um, which I think is interesting because when, when we try and apply this to professional matters and, and unprofessional conduct, you can kind of come back to the same thing. There are certain times when people do something which after the fact we all look at it and go, how could you do that? you clearly managed to reconcile yourself to something that you probably should have tried to um, protect against. Um, or you deliberately fell for temptation. That's the, the murder version of unprofessional conduct. But there's also in the negligence version of unprofessional conduct where something slipped through that probably shouldn't have slipped through if you'd actually done the right level of checking or if you thought about what it is you were busy with you would have taken some precautions and negligently you didn't. And the two case studies we're doing actually fit into this mold. 
The first one is much more about a temptation to do certain things, and the second one is much more about um, not taking the precautions that if you thought through stuff enough, you probably would have. So the way this is going to work is we're going to play the video. They've promised me they'll try and help from the back there because um, I don't have buttons to push up here. Um, and the, 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 the videos kind of come from straight as they were from the, from the institute and faculty. Um, I had the sliced ones in case we wanted to stop in between, but I've seen it's probably better to just keep going. And then there'll be a couple of questions after the video. And the way we will do that is turn to one another, groups of three or four we've seen works best, and discuss the questions. And once we've discussed the questions for a bit of time, I'll come back up and make a bit of noise, and then we'll throw it open to were there any major learnings that people had while they discussed this? And were there any things that still felt like they were completely unresolved and it would be worth discussing them in the bigger group a little bit? And then we'll do the second video. So um, that's pretty much going to be how it's going to work. There are no right answers. The case studies were deliberately picked to kind of have shades of gray in them. So that should make it easy. All of us can have an opinion. Um, good advice from what I've seen at the previous seminar is pick yourself good buddies, then you get really good insights in here. <laughs> so um, I think we're going to go on to the first video now. In the world of the actuary, Changing jobs can be a complicated process, a nightmare. Hi, I'm Clive Spongi, and you may remember me from other actuarial training videos, such as Being Prudent, the Safety in Numbers, Assumption 2, The Return of the Assumption, and the award-winning I is not a number, yet I is one. Hi. Hi, I'm Jolien Joyce. I know what you're thinking. Hey Clive and Jolien, what are some of the main issues when moving from one actuarial job to another? Hmm. Well, one of the main issues to consider is when, how, and even if, to use the knowledge and information gained from your present company and apply it to your new role in a different organisation. Well, you're in the right place. That's what this video is all about. So, let's get that show on the road. Nice. That's Eric. Eric's an actuary with very detailed knowledge in quite a specific area of liability. Hmm. Although you wouldn't actually know it, would you, Jolien? He keeps it very well hidden. Much like Clark Kent. <laughs> The similarities are uncanny. Eric's current employer is Bloom Inc., a market leader in Eric's area of expertise. But Eric feels it's now time for a change. So he's accepted a job offer with a rival firm, GT Insurance. Hmm. GT Insurance will be looking to use Eric's experience and expertise to build their own offering in liability insurance. Eric's got a few reservations, though, about this job offer. So he decides to talk things through with his friend, Sarah, who is a trainee lawyer. Hmm. In a nutshell, Eric is worried about what, in terms of his professional knowledge, is okay to use in his new job. Ah. 
GT Insurance are employing him because of what he knows. But everything he knows has been gained at Blue Mink. Blue Mink may feel it belongs to them. But Jolien, Eric can't suddenly unknow what he knows, can he? So, what's he supposed to do? That's a great question, Clive. Thanks, Jolien. Eric's telling Sarah that he thinks the general knowledge that he has, uh, what he's gained from doing his actuarial exams, is okay to use in his new job. Even though he's designed some products with his professional knowledge for Bloom Inc. Hmm. Sarah agrees. Then Eric tells Sarah about some training notes he has in writing. The notes originally were provided by Bloom Inc but Eric has added to them over the years, often in his own time, and has developed his own training methods. He's thinking of using the notes to put together a training program for GT insurance. This time, Sarah shares her concerns. But Jolien, Eric did a lot of this work in his own time. Hmm. I'm not sure that really matters though, Clive. And neither is Sarah. Well then, heck, Jolien, what exactly can Eric take to his new role? Hmm. There's a lot to consider, Clive. There sure is. Think about the actuary's code. Ah. Isn't there a section in integrity? And what about personal circumstances? If Eric leaves Blue Mink on bad terms, he might be more likely to want to do them harm in the marketplace. Yes, but if he leaves on really good terms and still knows a lot of people who work there, he might make professional decisions that would favour Bloom Inc. But he has a duty now to GT Insurance. Exactly. So what exactly is he supposed to do? What are the boundaries? When it comes to professional knowledge, what exactly are the boundaries as what's acceptable and what isn't? All great questions, Clive. But I'm not the person to ask. Oh, I'm intrigued, Jolien. Who should we ask? Ask them. Okay. So, what should he do? Where do the boundaries lie? And when it comes to professional knowledge... You don't need to repeat the question, Clive. What? You don't need to repeat the question. Oh, right. Okay. Smile. Nice. Getting a little more specific, Eric tells Sarah that Bloom Inc. did extensive research into brokers. From that research, Eric knows which brokers are best to deal with. He also knows which brokers to avoid. Specifically, one highly regarded broker for which Bloom Inc. uncovered a critical weakness. As far as Sarah's concerned, Eric now has a duty to GT Insurance. But she also thinks it's unrealistic for anyone to expect Eric to unknow what he knows. So she thinks it's okay for him to use his broker knowledge in his new job. But it's important to remember, Clive, that Blooming regard their research as a critical differentiator oh. when it comes to their competition. Yep, Jolien, it's a tricky one. So, what do you think?
Okay, so three months on, and Eric is doing well in his new job at his new company. But Eric's manager has just asked him to provide some initial thoughts on a brand new service that GT Insurance is thinking of offering. A service that would be the first of its kind in the marketplace. The only trouble is that in the last few months of Eric's time at Blooming, he discovered that they too were planning on launching the exact same service within the next six months. So what should Eric do? Should he tell GT Insurance about Blooming's plans? That's the big question, Clive. It sure is. Nothing's ever straightforward in these actuarial videos, is it, Julian? No, it isn't, Clive. Hey, Clive. What you got there? Well, Julian, it's actually a copy of Eric's employment contract from Bloom Inc. How'd you get hold of that? Well, that's not important right now. What is important is that it says this. You may not disclose or make available to others any confidential information or intellectual property relating to current prospective business developed, used or possessed by Bloom Inc. These restrictions apply even after leaving the employment of Bloom Inc. Interesting stuff, Clive. Mm. Do you know what's in your employment contract? Food for thought, Julian. Well, that's it till next time. So it's goodbye from me, Clive Spongy. And it's goodbye from me, Jolien Joyce. Goodbye. goodbye. There's the first set of questions. So find yourself a couple of buddies close by, and at the end we'll do the, the roving mic one when I start making noise. Okay. It's wonderful uh, being in front of a large, a large crowd and hearing this noise level. It suggests that people were um, at least having useful discussions about either this or the weekend. Um, <laughs> is there a roving mic? Okay. Were there any... Anything that came out in your smaller group discussions that you think that's so brilliant I need to share it in the bigger group, then you can raise your hand. Or if there were any of the questions that you go, we just really couldn't crack this um, and we'd like to ask something about it in the bigger group, raise your hand and the mic will come. There's got to be some. Otherwise I'm going to be quite disappointed because we had lots of questions and comments, especially comments. This is the time to show everyone that you actually are... Here we go, I see a hand. This is just really trying to get the ball rolling. Brilliant. Uh, it's not that earth-shattering, but there's no question there relating to the new employer and any obligation that the, uh, in this case, the, the man uh, has to the new employer. For example, he could move across. Clearly the new employer thinks he's going to divulge all this information. He gets a huge uh, buyout from the old company, signing on fee, etc. And then he says, no, sorry, it's not professional for me to divulge the information. So the, the, that part has to be thought through as well. We had a, a long discussion, and I've just experienced it, where I've um, hired someone, and one of the things they did as part of the, the back end of the interview process was, um, listen, I know some, some deep dark secrets about your competitor, and um, are we clear in advance that um, that is not something you're going to be expecting me to share? 
So um, that was probably the the, the biggest learning um, that um, had come out of that video. It helps if you're moving to make clear up front whether they should be giving you this big package <laughs> um, for what they think you'll share if you don't intend to share it. Anything else? We must have had some more gems. Something that you thought this was quite well realized by someone. We're going to have to have another hand before we're going to move on. <coughs> Any takers? Good, now we've got two or three hands. I love it. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, if this does go to court, what's been put down in black and white is really the be-all and end-all. And when I get to the new employer, what did my previous employment contract allow me to do and not to do? And I think other these softer issues don't really play a role. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe it might be worth doing the show of hands on the, how many of you know what is written in your employment contract? Just raise it if you know what your employment contract says about confidentiality and intellectual property. Okay, so it's about half. <laughs> Not too shabby. Uh, we had a couple more, more hands here in the middle. Hi, I think an interesting dynamic for us is that as valuators, we are responsible for what we sign off. So to what extent would you be able to walk away with, say, your valuator resignation letter, which has some value to you, but it belongs to your previous employer. And the second issue is in terms of the fact that you're appointed in your personal capacity to these funds. So where does the responsibility lie in terms of handing the client over to the new valuator? Mm. And I see now we're in an area that the rest of you can answer much better than I can. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, just on item number six, um, I made an observation about what your duty of good faith is to your new employer. Because, say, your old employer launches their product two weeks before your new employer launches, and your new employer could have accelerated his his launch if he had known that the old employer was also working on a product. And I mean, my view was certainly that you need to actually let your new employer know that your old employer is working on, on this product, unless it was sort of explicitly confidential. Um, it becomes part of your market knowledge, I think. And your, your, certainly your new employer is not going to be happy with you if you knew and you didn't disclose it. And, and I think there's a duty of good faith. It's interesting, the only time anyone had been exposed to exactly that situation, they said they had felt that it was a confidential enough topic that time around that they didn't feel they could disclose, but man, they used every other means that they had to speed up the project <laughs> at their new employer for exactly that reason of trying to be able to show that they'd done the right thing. Okay, let's move on to the, the second of the videos. This one, it might be worth just... Um, Pausing a bit because they've created something quite odd here with lots of um, actuarial people, some in what we would probably consider quite seriously non-actuarial roles by now. So you have Stefan as the first actuary. He's the what we would normally say the grunt, the poor guy who had to do the real work. Um, Georgina was the actuary reviewing his work. Raj was sort of, um, they called him the chief actuary um, at the IFOA, but when I listened to the way he was... Um, uh, talking, I'd probably say he was the guy that um, had to somehow sign off, let's say, that role. Uh, Mel was a project leader with um, a lot of uh, 
actuarial background whose key role was just communicating and then um, there was a board member who was clearly in a role that was only historically actuarial but someone who could understand the discussion. So when you see the videos you'll sort of see them in that sequence, um, that's how the communication went. Doer, checker, sign off, project person going to talk to the person at board level. Okay, Georgina, here's the work for the new Covermax product you asked for. Thank you, Stefan. I appreciate all the hard work. No problem. It wasn't completely straightforward, but we got there in the end. You're an actuary now, Stefan. Nothing's ever straightforward. Agreed. The main problem was that so much has been affected by the recently changed regulatory requirements, mm. most of which I've never seen before. The requirements all seem rather unclear. So I broke everything down and based all my work on several different interpretations. OK. Well, I'm going to go read through all this with a cup of tea. <laughs> a big cup of tea. <laughs> Enjoy. I've got to go sort my stuff out for when I head to Marrakesh next week. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Beautiful place, Morocco. Loved it. Yeah. I need the break, to be honest. Anyway, I'll leave you to it. Oh, I've also notated in there the differences in predicted profit margins. It depends on which interpretation you choose, really. That one basis could be very profitable, the other only marginally. And in the worst case scenario, it will require capital support from headquarters with huge losses as a result. Well, if you've written it all down, then I'm happy. Now, I must go and read through this lot whilst I can still feel my arms. <laughs> See ya. Sarah said you needed me. Yeah. It's about this report. Now, I've had a read through it, well, most of it, and although I appreciate all your hard work, it all seems rather... Inconclusive? Long. Oh, okay. What you've done is very good, Stefan. Probably a little too good, in fact. The problem is, the work you've done is so detailed, it's actually obscuring the information we need. I tell you what, why don't we well, you, split the document up into a main report and a separate appendix. Okay. Yeah? Okay, so we put all the detailed work and findings in the appendix and keep the main report for the juicy stuff, the central estimate. Sure, we can mention there are other possibilities, but we don't need to make such a big deal out of them. Look, I know you're about to go off on holiday, but... I really think it's not going to take too long for you to turn around. You are the best person to sort this. We're so close. Sure thing, boss. Afternoon, Virage. Good to see you, Georgina. Here's the report we've been working on. We think we're in a pretty strong position to go to the board. Good. There was quite a bit of work involved, but I believe we've covered all bases. Oh dear. Oh dear what, Viraj? Well, whilst I can see this is all very good work, and I can really see the hours that you've put into it, but I don't think this will be suitable when it comes to briefing the board. Oh, really? Well, I thought... It's too long, Georgina. We don't want to overload people with a mass of complicated jargon, loads of caveats, and a whole range of different outcomes. What I want you to do is to reduce the whole thing down to three pages. Write it in plain English, and let's give them a clear and concise message. 
at the end of the day, we don't want to board. Board. <laughs> OK, shouldn't be a problem. Thanks, ah, Faraj. One more thing. Please give the whole thing a much more positive feel. Some of the assumptions seem rather cautious, and we can't um, justify excessive pessimism in our world. Please rework some of the numbers to a more realistic basics. OK. And once you and your team have done that, please bring it back to me. Sure thing. Remember, Georgina, less is more. Less is more. Ah, Mel. Just the person I wanted to see. Well, here I am, but i uh, better make it quick. I've got loads of things to sort out before I head to New York for this board meeting. Well, you will need this then. It's the report that we've written up on Covermax for you to take to the board. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, that was on my list of things to chase up this afternoon. Um, I, I'll read it on the plane. Uh, I'm sure it's got all the information I need. It's just there are so many things I need to do. I don't even think I'm going to have time to have lunch with the team later. OK, not a problem. If you've got any problems, give me a call. Okay. Have a safe flight. Hi, Viraj, it's Mel. Oh, I literally landed 20 minutes ago. No, I'm, I'm presenting in 40 minutes. Viraj, I, I can't hear you very well. Are you outside? Oh, OK, we, we'd better make this quick then. Um, look. Uh, Viraj, uh, about this Covermax report, uh, there's a bit of a problem. No, I'm, I'm not saying there's a problem with the work. It's just, I don't have the Covermax report with me. I, I'm, I must have left it on my desk in the rush, Viraj. Um, I I excuse me, do you mind turning the radio down? Oh. What? No, I... I didn't have time to read it through before I left. F female? What female? Oh, e email. Uh, no, we, we really don't have time for that. I mean, I'm minutes away and the internet isn't working on my phone. I mean, it, it wasn't a very long report, Viraj, so can you just give me the details? Yep, yeah, I've got a pen and paper in my hand now. <laughs> okay. Short to medium term forecasts, one million. Uh, pounds or dollars? What? Excuse me, do you mind turning the radio down? Um, okay, 500 million worldwide premium over the next three years. Uh, profits, okay. Claims benchmarked. Staffing needed in what areas? Say again, Viraj. Okay, um, and loss ratios are good. The capital requirements? Oh, oh, that's great news. You did what? Uh, Viraj? Viraj? Everyone, this is Mel. Mel's come over from London today to talk us through the progress made on a new product she's currently working on. Go ahead, Mel. Thanks, Jacqueline. Uh, hi, all. Yeah, I'm here to talk about the positive stuff from the work we've been doing on a, uh, a new product, Covermax. I mean, the product itself actually requires very little capital to run. Um, 
And we're already seeing profits across the board, uh, some of which are actually quite significant. Excellent. Indeed. Obviously, I won't bore you with in-depth data and stats, but it, it is safe to say that everyone back in London is really excited about this. I bet. We do require finance for the big marketing push we plan to do in the UK before we launch globally. But um, as I've said, this really is going from strength to strength and our expectations are nothing but positive. Well, this seems like a no-brainer to me. I believe that we should support the great work going on CoverMax. I propose that we allocate the required capital toward the project in order to keep the profit margins heading the way they currently are. All those in favor? Excellent. Well, that's that then. Right, uh, next item. Allow me to read you a letter which we received from the regulator not two days ago. From our review of your annual regulatory returns and subsequent discussion, we are writing to confirm that our view is that you have materially understated the necessary capital requirements relating to the CoverMax product. And that as a result, you are in breach of your regulatory capital requirements. We require you to inform us within 28 days that you have remedied the situation. I am absolutely seething. This is not what was presented to me and the board. We will find out who is responsible for this and there will be severe repercussions. Mark my words. Angry isn't a strong enough word to describe how I'm feeling right now. The board has to take responsibility for this. They are always saying they never have time to read in-depth and overly complicated documents. So as usual, we package these into smaller and more concise reports for them to look over. They've never had a problem with this sort of process before. I'm really not worried. I'm more than happy that I did my job. I, I, we put together a really good report that set out all of the options, the pros and cons, and the assumptions. I wrote that in the full report. Brilliant. I knew this would happen. I said from the outset that I didn't exactly know how to interpret the rules and that different interpretations gave different answers. No one listened to me and I was told to just get on with it. This was actually the very opening to my report, but I was told to remove it as it was too in your face, so I took it out. As a result of other people's failures, my reputation in the company is completely destroyed. Sending me all the way to America with incorrect information. As I say, embarrassing. If they knew this was a risk all along, they had a responsibility to make it clear. They wanted more concise information. If they don't understand a critical point, well, that's the risk they take for not making the effort. A conservative interpretation of required regulatory capital may result in an adverse strain to our balance sheet and invalidate our assumptions regarding the contract fulfilling our return or capital requirements. What was the point? I was never entirely happy with the summary Virage insisted we write. I mean, come on. 
You can't properly communicate the risks of a complex situation if people aren't really willing to read more than a few pages. If the people above me decide to rewrite my report to make it more acceptable and to change the numbers while I'm away, then that's up to them. I can't control how people use my work. Why do we pay actuaries all this money? Same process as before. Um, have some fun, but be ready. We want a couple of hands after this. Do we have um, any hands up? I'm looking for a hand somewhere. Who's first? No comments. Clearly, people now just want to go home. All right. I'm not going to. I'm not going to push as long as you had good discussions about more than the weekend. Um, one thing I thought I'll, I'll copy into the presentation in case it gets stuck on a website afterwards and it worked for the other um, seminar as well. SAP 901, whenever you're in a situation where you're not sure about communication and what to do and what not to do, contains quite nice extra information because typically there's very good formal report guidelines in the guidance notes, but um, when you... When you hit an area that isn't covered by something explicit, remember SAP 901 covers anything that isn't covered by anything else, and it's got very nice detail on what you do when you need to do communication. Who's the author, what's the form, those sort of things. Last thought on um, the topics today, the two pictures there was when I chatted to a, um, an ethicist friend, um, his response is to how you avoid the two um, types of dilemmas we spoke about. When you're dealing with the typical intent issues, um, and it's all about the temptation, the best thing you can do is to shine the spotlight on it. And the reason for that is as soon as you ask someone else's opinion, they can challenge you on the bits you weren't seeing that your own conflict of interest might have made you rationalize away. And um, the picture he used there, which I love a lot, um, came from something written hundreds of years ago where someone spoke about the slippery slope of um, behaving inappropriately. It starts with something quite small that you can rationalize away quite easily, but once you've done that for a while, maybe something else becomes more rationalizable. Everyone's doing it. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as this. At least it's not that. Um, and when you get comfortable with what's wrong, it gets a lot easier the next time around. And therefore, keep the spotlight on and keep asking other people um, the right way to behave. And typically, it's quite good for that. The one on the right-hand side is the best answer that he gave for when you're dealing with <coughs> negligence issues. When you have in your garden areas that you don't want people to walk into, you don't really want to stand around and wait until people want to walk into it and go, no, 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 don't go there. Don't, don't go there. Don't. You, before anyone tries walking into the garden, you plant a hedge, and that keeps the wrong stuff out of the garden. And we can also build hedges around our own behavior by saying, I will always do this when this sort of situation comes up. And those hedges slow you down in the normal course of events, but you will be incredibly grateful for them when stuff goes really wrong. And so maybe the, the last thing to end, up, to end off with is just a couple of... Um, questions to ponder as we go away from here. Um, the first one is, um, so um, when last did you 
think through your CPD needs and what you are actually experienced and, and competent to do and what not. Um, when last did you decline work because you knew that you weren't experienced or competent enough to do it? When last did you, outside some formal requirement to do so, go to someone and ask them to check your thinking, or even more dramatically, your work, to check that what you were doing was appropriate and good enough? When last did you ask yourself what it is that you should probably know but don't, and admit it? When last did you read through all applicable guidance and legislation that affects your day job? How many hours of CPD are you going to count for what you had today? Did every second of this count as CPD? Um, these are the things that all of us can only answer individually, but that's what the real ethics is about. Thanks. Nico, thanks very, very much for this session. I know that it was a welcome relief to have a session that was so participative um, and, and not one where you had presentations where people just get, you know, uh, were on the receiving end of, 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 of reams and reams of, of um, uh, material. So, so, so well done on your, on your innovative approach to, to, to um, dealing with this particular issue and it made, made this session a lot more fun than I think most of us uh, might have expected. So thanks very much. And on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee, I'd like to thank you for your effort and also for making the time to fly from Cape Town and, and present to us today. Thank you. Thank you very much.